This hour of boat talk is made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net. It's 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague is up next. Good morning. It's time for Boat Talk, second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 102.9 in Bangor. Boat Talk is our, our own community radio call-in show for folks contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors mike joyce and alan sprague mike is just on his way back here from a, a delivery where he went through some whale soup so he might be a little extra fluky today yeah good uh, one i'm gonna uh, throw out a, a hello to uh, australia too we had an email there's a fellow down there who's staying up until midnight just to hear weru live on the internet that's the record so far i don't know if we're going to be able to get any further away from the table in uh, east orland maine here than australia we've had the chicago yacht club bristol england uh, we had a uh, underwater archaeologist call from bristol england one day and australia outstanding yeah, australia. shout yeah. out mate we we actually have a little connection with australia here in maine uh, down there, they're coming up on spring, but right here, we're uh, we're approaching fall and uh, going to be getting cold pretty soon. We'll be putting on our down underwear. Yeah, uh, well. <laughs> I know, that's bad. Uh, He's but, the punny one, and we just kind of, you know, you have to say thank you when he makes them. So. First and foremost, though, we have to welcome back Captain Giffy, full uh, world-renowned boat surveyor and color commentator. I don't believe it. <laughs> Giffy, I was asking the other day, you're getting some time on the water this summer. You've got a lovely little lobster boat. Yeah, I just came back from a, an eight-day cruise to nowhere. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, absolutely beautiful in every respect. Could you name a nowhere you were at, just for instance? Or <laughs> Didn't tell anybody. Doesn't really that. matter, does it? <laughs> I always like the, uh, the boat yeah. name uh, yeah. Noetta, N-O-E-T-A, yeah. which is you know, no... ETA. Yeah. No ETA, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, the Korea jewelry people there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, uh, staying on the boat uh, all those nights? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Stay right on board. Why Excellent. would you stay anywhere else? Yeah. 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 You couldn't. And traveling with the dog. Yeah. It's exactly. Yeah. There What's you. a prettier picture than that? It doesn't get any better. Yeah. No. We, it doesn't. We, we're very fortunate. We live in one of the best parts of the world, right here in Maine. We should not take it for granted. I had a uh, nice gig for about 14 years, captain in a boat, and I, I used to uh, live down in Nova Scotia, went to college down there, and, and uh, he wanted to take the boat down to Cape Breton, down to the Berdora Lakes, and uh, what an outstanding chance to go back and visit. You know, and I uh, had a great time. Went down uh, by yacht, uh, got ferried back and forth by the private jet, you know, got to see my friends and all that. And at the end of the trip, I'm saying, well, geez, wasn't that great? And he says, oh, really loved it. I said, well, you know, can't wait to go back again, eh? <laughs> and he says, geez, Mike, we're already in Maine. Why should we go anywhere else? And yeah. there's no comeback to that, right. you know. So anyway, Boat Talk this morning, we contemplate things naval. And you can give us a call at about any time, one eight six six. 625-9378 is the number. Um, in uh, oh, about 10.30 or so, we're going to be talking about whales. Speaking of the whale soup yep. I was in the other day off of Cape Cod. We're coming up on a com at the end of the comment period on the whale entanglement issue. on Just, uh, I think it's September 17th, what, uh, 10 days from now? No. Yep, and Six it's only been uh, going on for about 14 years, but of course it's all come down to the last 14 days, more or less, and a bunch of people are quite upset. And uh, you got your fishermen, you got your scientists, you got your uh, National Marine Fisheries Service bureaucracy, and then you've got, uh, you know, uh, not to put too fine a word on it, uh, um, 
Yeah, I'll use this. Uh, you've got your uh, what what some people see as environmental wackos. You've got your environmentalists, and and some people again, uh, that's been a demonized term, sort of like liberal in a lot of ways nowadays. Environmentalists, and they're all kind of against each other, and you know the poor whales and. So we got some interesting stuff. We'll have Dr. Sean Todd from the College of the Atlantic and Allied Whale on about 10.30. In the meantime, we got some odds and ends to talk about here. And once again, we'll take your call at about any time. Right. We need a telephone number here. Write this one down. It's kind of tricky. 1-866-625-9378. Well, what do we start with? There was a bad boat crash on Long, Long Lake, oh, yes. which is over by Naples, Harrison, uh, you know, uh, up above Sebago, that kind of uh, area over there. And basically it was a nice night, and a uh, man and his girlfriend were out in a small boat, had a 115-horsepower motor, so it wasn't that small of a boat. They were watching the Perseid meteor shower on the lake, and uh, along comes a 32-foot cigarette boat at extraordinarily high speed, uh, probably going about as fast as it could. Mind you, we're in the dark here. Cut the uh, little boat in half and killed both the people in it. Uh, the lady, was uh, she died of blunt force trauma. The other guy, the, the fella, died. The cigarette boat continued on through the boat, uh, went up on the shore in 135 or 50 feet into the woods. That's how fast it was going. Now, was anybody using any lights? Um, it was said that the boat that was hit had no lights on it. Most uh, motorboats on a lake at night, who would think of that, you know? It is the law that you have to have a lighted vessel, but there's nobody enforcing it there now, is there? And, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely for your own safety. Now, um, you know, there's a couple interesting things about that. For instance, the uh, fellow who uh, was in the cigarette boat, he was with his girlfriend. I don't believe his wife knew that. Um, that was probably unfortunate when that came out in the paper. So anyway... Uh, Again, uh, they're running at night. A uh, cigarette boat on a uh, long lake's a pretty pretty big lake. It's uh, miles and miles and miles long. I mean, you can get going on that. They do parachute, uh, um, where they put parachutes behind boats. They, uh, you know, it's it's a very very busy lake. My uh, sister has a place up there, and uh, you know, just a tragedy. And I guess um, it will be yet to be sorted out exactly who was doing what. But um, you know, you kind of wonder. Seems well, like. everybody, you know, has their uh, opinion, but I think it's it's just uh, abominable that somebody is allowed to run that powerful a boat after dark all over a lake. It just does not make any sense to me. And a lake, uh, like I said, you only have a limited uh, amount of space yeah. to go. And yeah, indeed, anybody can say what they want about the type of boat they like, but. Uh, these super high-powered boats are dangerous when you step aboard of them, period. Now, I've seen a case in Florida years ago, and I happened to be right there when two of these cigarette boats collided at night. Collided at night. It's, one of them landed up in somebody's front yard. This is on the intercoastal? Yeah. Mm. With a lot of serious injuries. We heard the... I didn't see it, but I, I heard the collision, and uh, it was about eleven o'clock at night. And I said to my wife, "Well, there, somebody wrapped a car around a telephone pole, but it wasn't there wasn't any car." Boy, but it's just like a car accident. Yeah. It's that loud. It's that violent. You have all that force and momentum. Yeah. You know, mass time. I momentum. think a lake, no matter how long it is, generally speaking, it's a limited area, and. Uh, I I just think it's just there's got to be some some reasonable regulation to prevent that from happening. Yeah, the uh, um, running in the ocean at night around here is not a good idea. There's all those lobster traps. You just yeah. can't run out inshore uh, around here. Matter of fact, as some buddies that just uh, took a boat to Booth Bay overnight from Southwest Harbor, their problem was to get to Booth Bay slow enough. Because they wanted to stay outside the main trap zone, zone, you know, and not circle back into Booth Bay at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning and get back in the traps. Running inshore at night in, in the state of Maine off in the ocean is kind of a crapshoot with all the lobster traps. So, Just a tragedy. Um, here's an interesting one. A Greek man went for a swim off a beach. It was in Greece, you know, and he got swept out by a current and he couldn't get back to shore. And three days later, some people on a beach kind of saw this fellow in the water not looking too good, and he was swept back into the beach. He survived three days at sea 
no flotation. He was in the uh, GNC, I guess, warm water, and he wasn't in good shape after no, three days. That will still like do a terrible hypothermic job on you. A white prune. Yeah. That's happened before. One of the most famous ones was a, uh, a man that fell off a, a, a ship, and uh, he'd been gone at least eight, eight hours when they discovered he was missing. And uh, the ship had gone hundreds of miles, and uh, they were able to turn around, go back, and found him. Wow. Wow. It was in warm water. And the lesson there is don't give up? No, the lesson there was uh, good navigation. Yeah, yeah. Navigating officer knew, figured out about when he went overboard, where that would have been, and... Calculated some drift. And went back and yep. calculated everything, and uh, the captain put a bunch of extra men on the bridge with binoculars and about ready to give up when a, one of the men saw a seagull fluttering over something, and it was full of swimming. Wow. And huh. he'd been in the water quite a long time. Reminds me of the old Magnum P.I. classic uh, episode where Magnum uh, loses his surf ski off, off uh, shore and he has to tread water and he's promising his dad just five more minutes, you know, and, and he's saved too. When to give up? I was, uh, we just delivered a boat from uh, Northeast Harbor down to uh, Shelter Island, Long Island. Had a great little trip down there. Big moon rises, uh, great seas, good company, great boat, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we were uh, going down Long Island Sound at night, and we're off of, uh, oh, I don't know, like Point Judith Road Island, you know, and I'm about uh, six miles off the shore, and I'm out there by myself thinking, okay, what would happen if I ended up in the water here? Andy's downstairs sleeping, uh, you know, it'd be a terrible thing. I'm kind of a pro. I'd like not to do that, but you think, okay, what would you do? Well, I'd swim for the nearest lights. How far is that? Let's look it up on the chart thing. Oh, it's six miles. Wow. Might not be able to swim six miles, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the dark, in the cold water. Mm. Yeah, don't fall off the boat. There's your first lesson. Here's another interesting uh, thing in the news. I thought the Gdansk Shipyard, which was the uh, the homeland of uh, Solidarity, Lech Welsa, yeah, all that kind of stuff, you know, back in the old days. Uh, well, Poland has now joined the European Union, and that shipyard is not in good shape. hasn't been modernized for a, a long time. Um, they have cut the workforce from uh, something like 15,000 down to maybe 3,000 or so. And uh, the EU forbids governments paying subsidies to, to uh, industries that can't stand on their own. And if this thing can't stand on its own, well, then it has to get uh, either mothballed or shut right down. Um, the people, of course, involved with the Gdansk shipyard are kind of appalled by that. It's quite a facility, you know, although, uh, again, hasn't been modernized. Here's the thing that was really interesting to me. It's a builder's market now for large ships, and uh, they're mostly built in Asia. Uh, we, don't, we build warships in the United States of America and, and uh, you know, not, not a lot else. And uh, if you want a large tanker or a cargo ship built, you're going to Asia nowadays. Giffy also mentioned Turkey. And most of them are being built in China, yeah, unfortunately. But uh, I think there's an opportunity here in America uh, because of the soft dollar uh, for more boat building. Shipbuilding as well, but more boat building. Uh, uh, there's a lot of yachts being built in our part of the world here, and we're certainly now in a dollar-wise competitive market, and I, I think it should be exploited. It just keeps coming back to me with this whole globalization thing and everything being made somewhere else and being shipped to us. We don't have any ships, really, you know. It's all uh, foreign vessels that are delivering all these goods. and So we just throw that out there for what it's worth. Hey, it's about uh, coming up on quarter past ten. We're doing boat talk this morning where we contemplate your naval issues. And uh, you can give us a call at about any time. 1-866-625-9378. Yeah, and we got all kinds of things to talk about uh, still. Let's think here uh, also. Uh, let's talk about the 23-foot True Rocket. What's a True Rocket, you say? It's a uh, rocket model boat built at the True Shipyard in Cape Cod years ago. Our friend Jim McDonald uh, called up Boat Talk years ago. Jim's from Unity. He's a furniture maker up in Unity, cabinet maker. And he called years ago asking advice about fixing up this 23-foot rocket. Well, uh, he ended up donating it to the Unity Barn Raisers, 
And uh, eight or ten people got together on Wednesdays uh, starting last spring, and they, they darned, darned if they didn't just launch it. Huh. And it's floating in Unity Pond now. But it wasn't built on Cape Cod. Where's the uh, true yard, Giffy? Uh, that's uh, your well, area. Either Ipswich or Amesbury. Okay. And uh, they, they built other boats, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, isn't Ipswich on Cape Or is it right at the base of Cape Cod? No. No? No, no. It's, it's just uh, slightly north of Gloucester. Ah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good thing I'm so, well, If you're swimming, yeah. <laughs> See, I can tell you how Tunk Lake uh, compares to the boy, but not where Ipswich and Sandwich are. So, you know. But, uh, oh, yeah, they built uh, some nice little boats there. It was, they, just, it was a typical uh, round bilge sailboat. It's about, I think, they're about 24 feet. Yeah, a little yeah, cabin yeah, boat, a yeah, uh, sloop, yeah, uh, not yeah, bad looking, yeah. and uh, perfectly capable yeah. for a Unity, lay, a unity yeah. Pond there. Um, you know, a great example of uh, uh, getting more people involved in the boat and spreading it out there. And as an um, offshoot or result or, uh, I don't know, continuation of this, the Unity Barn Raisers have secured a uh, $40,000 grant. Uh, let's see. I didn't write down who the grant was from here. But uh, it's a community development grant. And what they want to do is uh, have a program for 7th and 8th graders to build shellback dinghies and then learn to sail them through the school there and uh what a what a good idea that is so anything anything like that that you teach a young person to work with their hands and learn how to use tools properly will stay with them all their lives and again uh you know why am i sitting here this morning uh we fixed up uh i didn't have any boats in my family when i was a kid but uh, the neighbors did and they sold the poor old sailboat and got a cabin cruiser, just appalled, but they got an old wooden sailboat, and us boys fixed it up, and we sailed it around for a number of summers when we were teenage boys, and I literally never got over that, and that's what, you know, how I ended up to be a boat builder and sitting here doing boat talk this morning, and I wish the somewhere fate for some of them other little kids, you know? Well, the, the, the other thing is I think it's a lot better for young people to to learn to work with your hands and how and the proper use of tools uh, instead of playing games on a computer. Boy, that's my narrow view yeah. of it. <laughs> I like to think you can't hurt a kid by giving him a boat, but of course you can drown him. Uh, you know, all kinds of bad things can happen. But again, I'm, I'm they just, learn to take care of themselves. I'm amazed we got through our lives without it, all those pads and helmets, Giffy. You know that they got nowadays. Yeah, I got a, I had, I got a few spankings. <laughs> yeah, uh, bet you deserved a couple of them. <laughs> uh, Speaking one, of eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Give us a call here and talk about boat talk or, or spanking or whatever you like. Yeah, hell, we're, we're pretty loose. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, uh, speaking of grants, here's another very interesting one. Uh, one of our favorite topics around boat talk is the, uh, the boat school, as we call it, the Marine Trade Center down in Eastport, which has just now been transferred to the administration of uh, Husson College, which is excellent. We're all in favor of that. They're starting off the year is great. But here's a new one wants to start up. There's been a uh, North Star Alliance grant, and it's been given to somebody called the Marine System, uh, Marine System Center for Excellence. And what they want to do later this year is start a school at Thomaston Academy. And uh, this is going to be a Marine, uh, Marine school. And uh, it's going to be fronted by the instructors from the Landing School in Kennebunk. Uh, it says also here the Maine Community College Systems and the American uh, Boat and Yacht Council which sets the standards for all things uh, yachty and boaty, are going to be involved in this as well. They uh, want, within the next four to five years, to establish a separate campus somewhere in the Rockland-Thomaston area, and uh, we're talking about a new boat school. And we're all in favor of that kind of thing, education and, and uh, supplementing what is really a very healthy industry here in the state of Maine. Yeah, we have a phone call, so let's go to that before we get our comments on that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. My name is Andy, and uh, I've been listening to your uh, comments about uh, youth programs, and um, I'm involved in the uh, community boat uh, program down in uh, Belfast. We row the 32-foot pilot pilot gigs. Come boating. Yes. Come boating, right. And we row them for recreation and uh, competition. And I wondered if any of the listeners in the Bucksport area would be interested in... uh, starting a program for the Bucksport area youth, similar to that one down there, for both recreation and competition. 
What a great idea, Andy. Bucksport Harbor is having some, some kind of a renaissance, really. There's uh, more boats there all the time. And uh, they've got a little marina there, not to mention the town landing. Yep. Uh, I tell you what, I had a little experience. A friend of mine uh, lived on his boat in uh, Bucksport Harbor last summer, and I lent him my dinghy, and I was out there one day. And I uh, got back in the dinghy and was coming back into shore. Now, the first thing I did when I got in the dinghy, I, I fumbled the oar. The tide was leaving. I was soon leaving, too. <laughs> and I tell you what, I, it took me probably a good 20 minutes of rowing as hard as I could to get myself back to the boat where I started. Okay, I was going to Castine quickly. And, uh, boy, that current in that river there is nothing to fool around with. It took me probably 40 minutes to get back into the dock. I about exhausted myself doing it. I get in there, some lady says, are you okay? I've been watching you. I didn't know if you was going. Oh, yeah, geez, you know. So that's a tricky little piece of water there with all yeah, the Yeah, it is. Current. But, you know, you know, you'd have to pick your time with black water or something right. to uh, do it. But I think Bucksport could support something like that. And uh anybody's interested, they could give me a call. Go ahead. 469-7932. 469-7932. How about email? Andrew underscore Tyne, T-Y-N-E at hotmail.com. Like okay. I said, what a, what a lovely thing to give a kid a boat and to uh, also those, those practical skills of just uh, putting uh, two pieces of wood together, I don't care what it is, are Seems never like wasted. There's, there's more and more schools doing this little small boat building thing. Yeah. I think it's a good thing. It's a great we feedback. You even get some of the older kids, the well, older that, 40s. That's even gone on in the Brooklyn School Department where um, Brian Larkin took his time to teach children uh, to build small wooden kayaks. I think that's one of the boats they built, anyhow. There was a program over here at the Orleans School, uh, started by uh, John, I can't think of John's last name now, he's moved on, and uh, they actually built a building over here, and uh, they built some, some dinghies and stuff. Uh, EBS donated the building, but they had uh, trouble with that, that program. Uh, I can't remember exactly what, but it's not, it's not a simple thing. It's expensive, for right. one thing, to build boats. And also, uh, let's face it, uh, you know, it's kind of dangerous work. So, well, It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be. We have a lot of cedar. It's, you know, rel still relatively inexpensive. You know, you go out and buy a sheet of good quality marine plywood, and that's expensive. Yeah. Okay, I'll look for right. you to donate that. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, uh, we'll there's other, the there's other materials that are practical to use and yeah. not too hard to work with. Oh, there's nothing like eastern white cedar that grows right here for a boat wood, you know, one of the greatest woods around, I think. Well, thank you, Andy, for calling You're this welcome. morning. Bye-bye. Right. Appreciate thank it you, and hope we get a response to that. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. If you folks down in Bucksport want to call back or anybody else, coming up on the half hour here, we hope to get uh, Sean Todd from the College of the Atlantic and Allied Whale on the phone and uh, talk a little whales here. Here's another interesting uh, uh, news item from the Gulf of Maine. Tuna are not here right now in the numbers that they used to be, and the tuna that are here are not. They have no fat on them. And uh, fat speaks to reproductive capability and also success in, in uh, life, you know. Uh, fat and happy sort of tuna are, are uh, good reproducers. Um, let's think in the mid-90s, they say that on an average year, you would get five to 900 schools of tuna in the Gulf of Maine. And each school might have 100 th members in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're talking 10,000. That's 10,000 tuna right there. I remember sailing through a tuna feeding frenzy. It was pretty amazing. I thought the water was boiling. I've never there. seen that. That'd be pretty cool, yeah. Well, this uh, um, in the last couple of years, the tuna numbers have just plummeted. And, uh, you know, they're still really looking for an explanation for that. These tuna range extraordinarily far. The You know, Gulf of Mexico, Mediterranean, Gulf of Maine, all the same to them. And it's just constant motion and eating. They're omnivores. They have high metabolisms and they got to keep eating. Mm. And uh, the fish that they, that they uh, do get, they grade uh, according to fat content. And nowadays, as I say, uh, you know, they're all kind of C, C minus or under fish. And uh, it speaks to the health of uh, the tuna. It also speaks to the changing nature of the Gulf of Maine and who's out there doing what. Well, some of it is uh, attributed to uh, the midwater trawling, for heaven. 
It's, it's, I understand it. And it probably has some merit because uh, these big midwater trawlers just... Who are after herring, right? After herring. Yeah, yeah. which is what the... what, what the, That's the best, fi- the best food that those tuna can find is yeah. herring. Yeah. And inshore, there's not herring like there used to be here. Uh, they say, uh, according to the paper here, that the herring stocks are actually quite good now, but they're offshore. So, interesting. Like I say, speaks to change. And uh, you want to talk about change? The species mix out in the Gulf of Maine has changed extraordinarily over the years. And the, and the discovery times, of course, uh, you know, apparently you could walk, uh, you know, pretty much from Newfoundland uh, down to Maine on the backs of codfish or some such. I mean, you know, and uh, lobsters in the shallows, uh, four-footers or oh, biggins, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And uh, nowadays, that's kind of changed a lot. But... Just did a, a delivery we went down, uh, you know, uh, from here through the Cape Cod Canal. And once you get inside the uh, arm of Cape Cod there inside of Provincetown, Race Point, we were in what I would have to call whale soup, you know. And uh, here's the scene. The, you know, the boat needed a little, uh, little uh, cleaning downstairs, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll clean all day if Andy will keep the deck, you know. And so I'm downstairs on my hands and knees cleaning things, and a call of whale ho stops all of that. And right up on deck, and again, they were all over the place, minkies, finbacks, and about two miles off our uh, port bow was a spectacular humpback just breaching and splashing. And, and there's whale-watching boats and little uh, down in Massachusetts waters. Everybody and his brothers out there running around with a fishing pole. But it's very dependent on the feed that's there. Yep. Uh, several years ago, I was involved with the whale-watching boat program. And uh, I said to the biologist that uh, was representing this organization, well, what happens if the sand deals don't come back to Stellwagen some year? And they said, oh, no, that, that would never happen. It's always gone that way. Well, the very next year, they did not show up, and the whales didn't come to Stellwagen to amount to anything. Because that's what they they're doing there. They were all down on the backside of Cape Cod and all the whale watching boats had to go way down the backside of Cape Cod to see any whales. Yeah. I hear that uh, the whales uh, locally are out on the Scudic Ridges right now, um, you know, in abundance. And uh, they talk about the right whales. They have a favorite place at the top of the Bay of Fundy, but, of course, they range and feed everywhere. Well, let, let me make one observation that, that has to do with this whale gear business is that I spent a lot of my life uh, running yachts and stuff up and down the coast of Maine. And my observation of whales has been, uh, generally speaking, they're outside of Penobscot Bay. Uh, I've seen them ranging from outside, of, r- roughly outside of Monhegan, uh, right up through outside of Idaho to Mount Desert Rock. But I've never seen a whale inside of that basic line from Mount Desert Rock down through to pretty much down towards Portland. Yeah. yeah. And they've always been outside of that line. So why why does the lobster fisherman have to have gear uh, all changed to fish inside Penobscot Bay? That, I, I've never seen a whale up in Blue Hill Bay Yeah, uh, or, or anywhere else inside in Penobscot Bay. I've seen them outside of Idaho and Matinicus, but I've never seen them inside of that basic line. So what what does that, why do they have to change the lobster gear inside? Is it, Can't you put common sense into the equation? That is one of the issues they're working on now, uh, an exclusion zone. I mean, for it. instance, if you fish out inside the, hey, uh, outside the federal line, you, you have to have a federal license. Yeah. You know, why can't you use the same basic philosophy or thinking as far as lobster gear goes? There's no reason a man fishing outside where the whales are maybe couldn't come up with a better way to do it. And and if you're inside, you don't have to do it. 
Yeah, we've been talking some a uh, little bit of local jargon here, uh, inside and outside on the coast of Maine. You know, uh, well, it's it's all outside, isn't it? Once you get off the first rock, but no, uh, inside and outside are kind of how the fishermen think of it. Think of inside as inside the chain of islands and ledges here, and uh, that is a zone where there's about three million traps registered in the state of Maine. Now they don't all have a separate buoy, but uh, boy, there's there's a, a large amount of lobster gear in the water there. Um, outside. Uh, you get out around Long Island, out outside of Idaho, outside of Matinicus, Matinicus Rock, uh, out, outside of Monhegan is, is what you refer to as outside. You still see gear in the water out there, but not as much. And uh, for well, purposes of us... Well, there's a lot of gear outside on, uh, side the, the, the demarcation line. Yeah, a lot, uh, yes, a there lot is. Of it. But oh, not, not in the density that's inshore. Yeah. And the point I was going to make was it's like my friends uh, taking the boat to Booth Bay overnight the other week and uh, us running uh, at night delivering boats. Uh, you can't run inshore uh, in the state of Maine at night. It's a crapshoot with all those lobster traps. But outside, you've got a pretty good uh, shot of running down there. And running down uh, Buzzards Bay, Long Island Sound at night, that used to be a problem because all the gear in the water, there's no gear in the water down there because anymore. Because the lobsters are dying off. Yeah, and and it makes it a lot easier for us going down there at night. There's still a, a fair amount of lobster fish in there, but there is a big change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe we have uh, Sean on the phone from Excellent. Will. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Sean Todd from uh, College of the Atlantic and the uh, Allied Whale. We had a nice little chat yesterday, Sean, and I'd like to start off with, uh, uh, you know, what's your background and, and uh, what do you do all day? Well, uh, I'm a professor at College of the Atlantic. I am the uh, Stephen Katona Chair in Marine Sciences, which means essentially I'm one of the people here at the college in charge of getting people enthusiastic about working out in the ocean and understanding the various issues at, on the ocean, not necessarily just biological, but uh, political and social and cultural. And uh, my background is uh, I'm trained as a scientist. Uh, I did most of my training up in Newfoundland uh, during the cod moratorium. And uh, I spent a lot of time uh, working with fishermen, uh, developing uh, release programs for whale, large whales that got caught in fishing gear. Uh, and, which was a sort of a parallel type situation to what we have here down in Maine. Um, the exception being that this, uh, you know, well, I guess similar to here, uh, the, you couldn't insure your gear for a whale hit. So the way the government uh, coped with that was that they funded a program to essentially rescue the net. And by rescuing the net, we would rescue the whale at the same time. So uh, I did that for 10 or 12 years, cutting humpbacks out of nets, and, uh, and then I found myself here. Those nets that you're talking about down in Newfoundland, are, uh, we're not talking about a lobster fishery so much as cod traps. That's right. We're talking about fixed fishing gear, um, essentially the equivalent of a fishing weir down here. Um, they can be set a bit further offshore, though. Yeah. Well, uh, the subject this morning is the, uh, you know, the whale versus rope controversy, and there's, uh, of course, some other ones. Whales versus ships is in the news, too, and also whales versus uh, Navy sonar. Mm-hmm. It's quite a, uh, quite a picture, uh, you know, the, uh, all, the, the, uh, all the things in the soup there, the whale soup, as we're saying this morning. Now, uh, so you got your fishermen. You got your uh, National Marine Fishery Service, the bureaucracy. You got your scientists. You got your environmentalists. Um, they're all kind of uh, got different perspectives on this. You, you're sort of in the scientific community now, aren't you? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, I, uh, as I said before, I am trained as a scientist, but at the same time, um, I, I have worked for a long time with fishermen, and uh, I guess that's a pretty humbling experience because, you know, you spend a lot of time in higher education learning all about oceans and, and, and biology, and then you come across fishermen who uh, who are on the water 24/7 and really know far more than we do <laughs> in many many cases about about what goes on out there. Um, so uh, I guess I'm, I'm I am both a scientist and, as we would say here at the college, at uh, the college, I'm also a human ecologist in the sense that um, I, I I strongly believe that humans are a predator in the ecosystem. And we have to work out ways to work within the ecosystem that, A, minimizes impact, but, B, also allows humans to be sustainable. That's a uh, great attitude you got there. There's a bunch of fishermen listening to Boat Talk this morning, I guarantee, and they were all smiling when you said that. 
But it is sort of an us against uh, them sort of thing, and everybody sort of uh, demonizes each other's position, and and it gets hard to talk to people, doesn't it? It is rather adversarial, and there's some interesting um, interesting comparisons and differences between what happens here in the states and what happens up in Canada. Uh, in Canada, we uh, did not have the equivalent of a Marine Mammal Protection Act uh, or even an Endangered Species Act up till very, very recently. Uh, so uh, the difference being, of course, in the United States, we have uh, a fairly hefty Marine Mammal Protection Act back in the 1970s and then followed by an Endangered Species Act. And the two of those together create some pretty strong protective legislation. And in fact, the first one of those, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, um, legislates protection of marine mammals, whether or not they are endangered, which is which is kind of interesting. So uh, the, the big, the biggest difference I can see between the Canadian and American situation is is that in America we we have had this this set of laws uh, that has really provided a very strong impetus to, uh, and maybe actually part of creating this adversarial nature, this conflict between the two parties. What went down in Newfoundland, uh, the old days of the, the uh, cod moratorium, boy, it hasn't got a lot better since then, has it? It, it has not. Uh, in fact, uh, most of the reports that are more believable seem to indicate that the biomass, the spawning biomass, has never been lower. Um, from the whale point of view, um, it, was good. It, was, it was good because of the reduction of gear in the water. And, you know, it, in that sense, it was somewhat of... Um, you know, uh, it, was a, it was a tragic event, but at the same time, it was an interesting experiment because we took most of the gear out of the water, and lo and behold, whales weren't getting entangled. So um, we know that that's one potential solution, but of course, it's not a viable solution as far as fishermen are concerned. So that's not one that should be entertained. Yeah, uh, could, could I uh, get a point clarified a little bit that sure. you might have an answer to? As I said earlier in the program, my experience uh, of running many years of running yachts up and down the coast of Maine, all I've seen many whales, and they're generally all outside of a rough line uh, from Mount Desert Rock right down through towards Portland. In other words, I've seen them outside of Monhegan, Matinicus, Hall, and of course you'll see them up to Mount Desert Rock. Why why can't the type of gear uh, be split by the area uh, that the whales uh, use as a common habitat? Uh, why can't you fish just regular standard uh, rope inside where the whales are, in an area the whales don't frequent, and outside where they are, go to some different type of line? I mean... Isn't some of it based on common sense and what, what we all know? Right. So, so the strategy you're suggesting there, you know, I, I do believe is, is uh, an idea that has been also picked up by Maine State fishermen and also you know, to an extent by DMR. Um, I, I think what we have to work on is understanding exactly what the habitat is. I think you've done a, an excellent um, sort of first stroke of that at, at, at defining that habitat. Uh, Allied whale and Allied whale has been out on the water in these in these waters since the 1970s, and uh, most recently we've also enjoyed an excellent collaborative relationship with with whale watch boats. You know, some of the first whale watch boats that went out, uh, you know, we, were heavily involved with Allied whale, and uh, and today we have a strong relationship with uh, Tom Walsh's group that operate out of uh, Bar Harbor. Uh, the Bar Harbor Whale Watch Company. And between the two of us, we are starting to build up a fairly comprehensive um, distribution map of where we expect to see sightings of whales. Um, as, as you know, Mount Desert Rock is a hot spot, no doubt about it. Um, Inniscutic Ridges are, are, are a hot spot. Um, there are other places such as the Eastern Bumps and what they call the Middle Ground, which are also hot spots. These hot spots, though, vary from year to year. And we're not quite sure what controls that yet. So sometimes it's the Inniscutic Ridges that's a good year, as we have right now. Uh, sometimes Mount Desert Rock is, is a great place to see a whale, as it was uh, two weeks ago, um, back, in, back in late August. So what defines that distribution, we don't know. We have also just recently completed an exercise in cooperation with DMR where we um, 
pulled out all the data that we had on right whale distribution. Uh, and right now, we have a map that goes back to um, late 80s, and we, uh, we, we understand there's more data out there that we can add to this map that goes before then. And what we've got from that map is it's clear that um, certainly earlier on, um, late 80s, early 90s, you did see right whales. Um, and, of course, right whales are, are the animal that are driving the, the entanglement issue. Um, we did see right whales closer to shore. In fact, um, you know, if, if you talk to your listeners, you, the, some of them may well remember the time that we actually had a right whale just off Bar Island, which, um, you know, in that very, very shallow water between where the college is and the island itself, which is just an extraordinary, probably a very, very odd circumstance, extraordinary. So they do happen in shore. Uh, but when you plot the three nautical mile boundary, the shoreline boundary, so the one closest to down East Maine, a majority of our right whale sightings do occur outside of that line. Um, the issue comes when you think about Mount Desert Rock, because Mount Desert Rock has got its own three nautical mile line around it as well. Technically, inside of three nautical miles of, 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 Mount, of Mount Desert Rock, you have state water. Uh, now, because that is a hotspot for whales, and we do sight right whales there on a regular basis, um, that is an area that is of concern, at least based on the data that we're looking at right now. And you should treat it as such. We should yes. treat Mount Desert Rock as a, as a different area? No, you should treat it as a protective area that requires special gear. Right, yeah. So, so I... Uh, I, I am basically in accord with you. I, I think what we need to do is we need to have a, a, an accurate idea of, of where whales go to feed, what, what is important habitat to them. Um, be aware that there's some flexibility in that and that from year to year there is variance around that and there are changes. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, modify fishing practices accordingly. Yes, there's one other thing you can do. Instead of forcing the fishermen to go into a major expense and change all their gear, change all their gear, they could, they could do it over on a calendar basis. You know, you change a certain percentage of it this year, certain percentage of it next year. You know, seems to me uh, you have a lot of uh, very valuable information at hand, and you put people intelligent people together, they can sit down and hash the problem out. And as they like, and you don't mandate it. Just I would love to see you at College of the Atlantic because that's exactly what we're about. We're about trying to bring people together who understand the problem, who are invested, and, uh, and not excluding anyone who has an investment in the problem. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess, if I understand you correctly, you're talking about a, a gradual change in gear as opposed to an abrupt change? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Something yep. that's reasonable, that gives the fishermen a halfway reasonable break, and that they're willing to accept. Right. Well, um, that, that, that's not my province, but obviously there are people listening who could think about that as well. Yeah. Well, it is a capital. It's a business, and yeah. it's a capital but you can't expense. Go right, so. you, every time some government official mandates something, you know, uh, it, it usually costs... Everybody involved, a lot of money, and doesn't work. Always interesting to get the fishermen together on any page. You know, as they say, you get a group of them, they can hardly uh, agree on what time it is. They just did have a little tie-up over lobster prices, which was interesting. And, yeah. and we, you have know, a, we have a phone call, so let's, let's go yeah, to that. Yeah, can we, can we uh, hang have on. somebody else here, Sean, hang might hang have something Sean. to say? Sure. Yeah. Good Hi. morning. Hi, this is Gray from hey, Gray. Um, uh, um It's very interesting discussion. Um but I would, I would like to ask your guests from the College of the Atlantic to comment on what I'm going to say next, which is that um, when you consider the whales versus the fishermen, which is sort of kind of how this whole thing is, is, is coming up, um, the whales and the fishermen are really not equal players in the, uh, in, in the issue. And I would like um, your guests to comment on the fact that when a species such as the right whale is endangered and their their population is reduced to perhaps a few hundred, um, I'm not sure what it is, but it's it's very small. About 300. Yeah, it's a tiny, tiny gene pool for very large animals. And when even one of those whales is killed unnecessarily by fishing gear, it's an un.
unbelievable loss, and it may precipitate. One whale at some point could be the tipping point where the whole species goes down. And uh, I think I think this is not really understood by the fishermen who think, well, you know, the whales are hardly ever in inshore, and they are inshore sometimes because I've seen them right off Mount Third Island. Um, when they are inshore and they get tangled, it could be a huge loss, and it could be a total disaster for the species. And that's why people feel so desperate to to um, to change the fishing gear. Uh, I understand that it's hard on the fishermen, but you got to understand it's also totally it could be even harder on on the whales. And I just I'd like to hear uh, your guest comment on that. And and maybe if the fishermen understood exactly how species extinction occurs in these large marine mammals, they might be able to come up with the in conjunction with the scientists with a, with a reasonable alternative instead of just reacting against against the changing the fishing gear because there aren't many whales or very few whales inshore. Anyway, I'm going to hang up and get the answer and hear what you say. Thanks. Thank you, Grace. Sean Todd? Well, um, I can update you on some figures, first of all. Um, the, the latest thought about how many animals that we have in this population, it's somewhere between 300 and 400. There's some, there's some error bars around there, you know, just uh, concerned with the technique that we have for counting them. Um, it, it, it is it is concern that you know with most populations, um, you you hope to count them by subsampling them in some way. And with the right whale population, it's so small you can almost sample the entire population and count them. Uh, so it's somewhere between 300 and 400 animals. Uh, on there is a Pacific population of northern right whales, which is in in, in desperate desperate straits, far more than this one, probably around 100 animals. Um, within that population, we have five matrilines. So, in other words, five families um, of, of animals. Uh, the inbreeding is significant. Um, there is very likely to be inbreeding depression. Um, depending on which expert you talk to, um, there are different figures, uh, population numbers out there for sort of thresholds of recovery. Um, some people say it's not a matter of how many, it's just a matter of time. Uh, other people you know, say, well... Um, look at populations such as the elephant seal, for example, which we think we probably hunted down to the hundreds, and yet now they're an incredibly successful species, you know, 50, 60 years, 70 years later. Um, so, yeah, threshold, threshold recovery is very important. The gentleman that spoke was, was absolutely right in saying that you take out one animal, especially a female, um, you, are, you have a significant effect on this population, and it could be the final, you know, every single female that we take could be that final nail in the coffin. Um, you know, from, a, from the conservationist point of view, um, the conservationists, of course, have put a lot of pressure on, on NOAA, uh, legal pressure, um, because it's NOAA's mandate to manage these species. And by, by, by the benchmarks that they produce in their briefs, uh, they are not doing that. That's, that's their argument, that they are not fulfilling their role to manage this species successfully and sustainably. Um, but again, you know, it gets to this point of sort of legalities and, you know, who do you believe, which set of evidence are you going to take, which, which is the stronger, which is the more rigorous set of evidence. Um, there, there are also potential ecosystem effects, which we can't even begin to imagine what might happen. Um, you know, the, I'm all about healthy oceans. You know, if we, if, if, if we can save the ocean... Uh, hopefully the whales can save themselves. So, you know, creating a sustainable ocean is really, really important, and right whales are likely a very important part of that system. Uh, you know, they, 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 uh, they fish on a specific species of, uh, specific uh, set of plankton. If we take them out of the equation, then what's going to happen to those plankton? How are they going to be consumed? Is, is another animal going to move in, which might be more of a pest species, uh, even more of a pest species fisherman? Um, so that's, that's a concern as well. Uh, the gentleman talked about sightings off sh uh, inshore. Um, he's absolutely right. We do get whale sightings inshore. We had a fin whale off Sand Beach last year, you know, an 80-foot animal within sight of shore. Had a whale in the middle of Sacramento, California. Exactly, which is a humpback whale. I would suggest, with all due respect, that a majority of the sightings that we're seeing inshore here in Down East Maine are not the right whales. They are the, the, the raucal whales, so the minkies, especially the minkies, actually, uh, uh, humpbacks, finbacks. Uh, and, of course, minkies come with their own uh, entanglement issues as well. Uh, Sean, um, let me th 
try to take the other side here for just for um, sure. argument's sake. Um, fisherman's viewpoint, if um, these uh, suggestions go through for changing in gear, basically what that means is that they'll be switching over to what they call neutrally buoyant line. Right. Um, I guess the problem with the tanglement is that when most of the line floats at the top, is that where the most of the... Uh, entanglement occurs with whales? Yeah, what happens is is that, uh, and we've got some good uh, remote-operated camera footage from DMR that demonstrates that this line forms these large hoops in between traps, and the concern is that the, these hoops um, peak at a height that whales dive down to. Mm-hmm. And so when, when they've got their mouths open and they're just on cruise control and they're you know, taking in the copepods, um, they, they just cruise right into that line. The line goes between the, between the baleen uh, and that is the start of a, of a substantial problem. Right. So that this neutrally buoyant line supposedly, so it'll lie down on the substrate. Right. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't uh, in theory doesn't rest hard enough onto the bottom to chafe through. Um, but I've talked to rope manufacturers, and they say that if this being neutrally buoyant as it is, that any small amount of dirt that it might hit, pick up off the bottom, or even on the deck of the boat, um, makes the the ropes sort of sink after a while. Yep. And um, in test cases that they've been running, they are noticing that it does does seem to chafe a bit. So this is a... a, a um, it's not a, an easy problem to solve. A, a product that isn't quite really... And you could up, make up a special it. rope, but I bet you it costs a million dollars a foot. Expectations. Well, even, even if you buy this rope, which is available now, I figured out for average lobster fisherman, if he fishes, he or she fishes uh, 400 traps and... Uh, say it's a 100-foot line per trap, to change all this gear over to this neutrally buoyant line would be $31,300 for that one person. That's quite a it's quite a big bite. capital expense, no matter what kind of business income. you're in, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I totally agree with you that I think, you know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's uh, somewhat of a moving target. I, I don't think neutral line will stay, neutral, uh, neutrally buoyant line will stay neutrally buoyant for any length of time. The minute it starts to get slub on it or get any grit in it. Or even uh, changes in salinity. Changes in salinity, exactly. These, uh, and, you know, and these things change fairly regularly. Um, you know, the, what that line's going to do on the bottom is going to be an issue. Um, and the, whether or not whales dive to that depth in state of main waters has yet to be determined. Um, you know, uh, we've done a lot of work up in Gramanan and around the Gramanan Basin. We've done a lot of work down in, uh, around, in and around Cape Cod and Great South Channel. And, you know, um, that, that is really excellent, rigorous scientific work that uh, has, has um, in a very robust way, demonstrated dive prof- profiles of right whales. And, and you know, certainly up in, in, in Gramanan Basin, they, they are known to do these very, very deep dives um, down to maybe uh, five, ten meters off the sea floor, where you have these large sheets of copepods that get stuck there uh, because of changes in density at that depth. And so they, they are definitely going down to the depth where the to play, these hoops of, of, of buoyant line. But, you know, the, no one's demonstrated that for our waters. And again, that's something that we are intensely interested in, and we're working with DMR on that to see if we can try and find a solution and there's a, there's a partnership of groups, uh, ourselves, um, Department of Marine Resources, and also HUI down in, uh, in, in Massachusetts, um, trying to come together and see if we can answer that question. We're doing Boat Talk this morning, and we're coming up to the top of our hour, and uh, we're talking to Sean Todd from the uh, College of the Atlantic and uh, Allied Whale. We're uh, way more stuff to get out here than apparently we've got time for, but we have a phone call. Can we take another one, please? Sean, uh, good morning. Who's there? Ray. Hi, good morning, Ray. Ray. What are you thinking? Uh, well, uh, Gray was talking about uh, what he was talking about earlier is what I'm thinking. Uh, but it, what I what I am thinking is uh, the, my what I'm about to say is based on information that I remember from I don't but information that I remember from several years ago when they went around the state having hearings uh, uh, at different places, and I went to one down at the University of Maine at Machias. My understanding was is that. Uh, the vast majority of white right whales are killed by ship strikes, not by fishing gear. And the other thing that I'm also thinking is the fact that the fishing gear is all lumped together. We're not talking about lobster fishing gear exclusively. We're talking about fishing gear in general. 
Uh, so I really don't even know how many right whales have actually died as a result of being entangled in lobster fishing gear. Uh, and, uh, the, and even your, you know, Sean uh, from uh, College of Atlantic, I mean, even he's admitting that there's a lot that they don't know about the right whale. My point is this. Why, in the name of heaven, would you want to cause a lot of difficulty for fishermen, lobster fishermen? Let's be specific what I'm talking about here is lobster fishermen. Why would you want to cause such a hassle for these poor individuals? And they may be not all poor, but a lot of them are. <laughs> Why would you want to cause a lot of problem for them when you don't even know for sure what's going on? The, the ship strike issue is, is what I really want to get at. The right whale is going to go, ex- my understanding was that the ship, the ship strikes were far outnumbered the, 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 uh, the fishing gear in terms of the number of deaths. They were talking uh, like, I don't know, seven, eight times as many deaths occurring because of ship strikes, not because of being entangled in fishing gear. And the, the other thing that I'm frustrated about is that the government, when they talk about this thing, they talk about fishermen taking whales. I don't know of any fisherman who's out there trying to take a whale. They're not whalers. They're lobster fishermen. They're not out there trying to get a whale. That's ludicrous. The language that is used by that government is adversarial to begin with. Taking a whale... No, no fisherman's trying to take a whale. That's a joke. The whales are bycatch, sort of yeah. giffy. There's Thank one, you, one more little issue of which I know nothing about, but it's I, I'm suspicious of what the Navy is doing with sonar. You got it. And, and I mean, they're doing some real heavy sonar stuff that I think, Screwing what up I the whales is, is very, very dangerous to whales. It's screwing up their uh, directional system. Yeah. We yeah. do have information on that this morning, too. The uh, National Resource Defense Council won a suit in 2003, and uh, limits were put on naval sonar. sonar. They've just been taken off, or they're about to be taken off, and there's a, uh, there was a 14-month period there where nothing happened because of national security issues, they say, and now there's a 15-day period uh, for comment that can't be elongated. One, o- one other quick statement. It's at least the government is doing something about trying to prevent ship strikes because the Coast Guard notifies all the ships of areas where whales are and put, put them on notice to reduce speed and, and put more effort into lookouts. Yeah. And there's another way they could be probably eliminated altogether if ships had some kind of a small sonar that would tip them off there's whales ahead of them in the water well we're just about out of time again we are in the corner we'd like to let sean give some contact information because as we said we are coming up on the end of the comment periods for anybody who would like to make some comments sean can you tell them how to do that thank him for his input it's interesting (laughs) thank you sean um yeah there's there's actually so much i could say more uh based on on uh i think ray's uh last comments He, he raised some very important points uh ship strikes we certainly um, ship strikes and entanglements together about uh, roughly about 50-50 uh, in terms of the contribution to mortalities now. Uh, ship strikes are a lot easier to prove in a necropsy uh, versus uh, an entanglement, and that's probably what, where he's getting his figures from. Um, and the Navy sonar is definitely an issue, definitely an issue. Um, but anyway, if, uh, you know, if, if people are interested in carrying on this conversation or want to get more information from me or would like to use me as a resource uh, in terms of the, the kind of science we do, um, uh, I'm at College of the Atlantic, which is in Bar Harbor, and you can find us on the web, which is coa.edu, and you can find my email there. And uh, like I said, you know, we, we are, at the college, we, we really do try to bring together everyone's points of view. We... You know, we have excellent students here that, uh, that are remarkable, and they, they, they really do carry the, work, the weight of our work forward. Um, so, um, you know, if people want to contact me, they're very welcome to. Thank you for my part. I think I found you to be very interesting. Very interesting. And, of course, we didn't get close to covering it in our half an hour there. We may have to do it in the future. I'll also let you know that when the phone rings here at the radio, it's quiet. It flashes, and we're having a little lightning storm right here right now. So <laughs> made some phone calls, and, uh, you know. But we thank you, Sean Todd from College of Atlantic and Allied Whale this morning.
Thank you, sir. I appreciate having the forum. Yeah, hopefully another time. We have just about run out our time on Boat Talk this morning. I didn't think I was going to be here today, but I'm glad I was. And, uh, you know, who knows what will happen next. Giffy, we're always happy to have Giffy here. And uh, not to mention the, uh, the flounder. Yep, and Schooner Fair. And Schooner Fair, uh, yes. Let's also note our new theme song here. And uh, we need to get busy at the website now that we have uh, new theme music and we can start uh, pumping stuff out over the web. That's not really a summer project. See that kind of happening in the next month or so. So That's W-E-R-U dot O-R-G or BoatTalk.org. These things are archived there and other kind of information. And uh, we thank you for listening.